Today we're continuing our journey through the book of Exodus. In the past few weeks, we have seen the Lord rescue the nation of Israel from slavery, lead them out of the wilderness, and bring them before the mountain of God, with Moses as our protagonist. For 31 chapters, we have witnessed what the Lord has done for and amongst his nation, and how the Lord has created a relationship. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Today, we're going to witness how this people nearly undid everything the Lord had done. By the way, I'm going to use the term the Lord to clarify that I'm talking about yod heh vav heh the God who, who took the Israelites out of Egypt, and to differentiate him from a more generic God, lowercase g. So, this is a piece of artwork that my friend created. That's exactly the response. This is a piece of artwork my friend created several years ago, and I hung it in my cubicle at work on my first day at my church job. And after a few days, various people came by to say hello, and each would ask about this picture and what it meant. I asked them, what do you think it means? And some would say, it's Jesus going all John Woo, shooting at birds. And others would say, it's the last judgment. Jesus has returned, and he's kicking butt, and he's taking names. A pastor came by to say hello, and he said, I noticed that print on your wall. You might want to take that down. I said, why? He said, some people might find that offensive. Jesus would never resort to such violence. And then I told him what the artist meant by it. It's called, What Would Jesus Do? The artist is an atheist, and he has watched people in the public eye who claim to be following Jesus acting in the most insensitive, abhorrent, and despicable ways toward their fellow human beings. If these Christians claim to be representing Jesus and act this way towards their neighbors, then this must be what Jesus is really like. And the pastor said, oh. <laughs> Today we're talking about idolatry, replacing the Lord on the throne with someone or something else, and how the people of Israel weren't the only ones to make this terrible mistake. If you have your Bible handy, please turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 32, beginning with verse 1. That's Exodus 32, verse 1. And I'll also display on the screen the verses from the English Standard Edition. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Go up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to him, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proper proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to, ink, to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, 
that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So what we have here, what we seem to have here, is a good old-fashioned revolt. The leader is gone, and so the people have decided to replace him. But with what? In Exodus 20, the Lord had said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet, 12 chapters later, the nation of Israel says, Go up, make us gods who shall go before us. Have the Israelites forgotten there's only one God? Well, the Hebrew for God, word for God, Elohim, can be read as singular or plural. So it would kind of make sense why they have some confusion. But later on, we see this in Exodus 32.4. They said, these are your gods. All that is plural. So some see this as a signal that Israel, after being disconnected from the Lord for 400 years, remember, they had been in slavery for 400 years, they had lost contact with God, they didn't know who he was, and all of a sudden, this God shows up and takes them out. But they were disconnected from him for 400 years, and they were exposed to the pantheons of Egypt and other nations, and they might still have had some polytheistic sentiments within them that are now coming out in the Lord and Moses' absence. Some believe that this was a literary choice by a scribe. He wanted to make it clear to anyone who read this that Israel was committing a huge sin. It wasn't just idolatry, it was also polytheism. So we have some potential polytheism going on here. But there's more to it. What about syncretism? Have the Israelites taken their their understanding of the Lord and blended it with their understanding of other gods around them? Possibly. Idols in the forms of bulls are common in history as they represent fertility. Often they served as pedestals or thrones for a god figure, a mercy seat, or ark, wink, wink, (laughs) upon which a god figure sat or stood. And there's evidence of possible exposure to these gods. In Egypt, there was the god Apis, who often pictured as a bull. In the land of the Canaanites, there were many gods represented by the bulls, including Anat, El, and Baal. So the Israelites could have been returning to a faith that they were exposed to in their captivity in Egypt, or they could have been adopting a faith that they are now being exposed to in their freedom. There's a third possibility. This golden calf really represented the Lord, yod heh Aaron tries to say as much when he proposes a feast day to yod heh before the golden calf. And he had to explain it to them. So take this for example. If I were to go back in time to the 1500s, and then I was to try to explain an automobile, automobile to someone of that time, It would be very, very tough. Picture this. You have a chariot that's pulled by two swift horses. But uh, add two wheels to the chariot, and uh, instead of the horses, insert various pieces of metal. Uh, It's shaped in a way that you can burn fuel inside them, and then uh, it will make the chariot move without the horse. And then instead of reins to direct the horse and, and lead them, you have these metal instruments for your hands and your feet to move so the chariot can turn or speed up or stop. So I might be actually trying to describe this, but they're looking at me and they're thinking this. It's hard to get that concept across to them. All they can comprehend is chariot, wheels. What's a car? This makes no sense. There's no context for engines. There's no context for electricity, machinery, industry. So I would have to use something familiar that they're familiar with in order to describe this. But in describing it this way, I can fail to describe it altogether. And this may be what happened to the Israelites. 
having been presented with an omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresent Lord that they can't comprehend. They only have the context of the gods that they've seen in the past that they can comprehend. They may very well be attempting to understand and worship the Lord and not some other god, but they don't have the tools to do so. So syncretism may be taking place, but there's more to it. This narrative is filled with parallels like crazy to get the point across. For example, the Lord defined himself this way in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the people defined their God this way. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The people commended big brother Aaron later on in in Exodus 32 to, to go up and to make gods who shall go before us. And shortly thereafter, the Lord commanded little brother Moses to say, Go down, for your people who have brought you out of the land, you have brought out of the end of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And note how the Lord has flipped the script. Up until this point in the book of Exodus, the Lord has called them my people. Let my people go. Now he's disowned them for their callousness toward him. Your people have corrupted themselves. But there's an even larger parallel here, a conceptual parallel, and it starts way back in Exodus 24, and it runs all the way through this chapter. Let me try to run through it real quick. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on this mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commands I have written for your instruction. When Moses went up on the mountain, a cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled upon Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord sets Moses apart from his people for this interaction, and the Lord gives him instructions on how he would live among the people. Just as people 500 years ago lacked the tools to properly conceptualize a car in their heads, the people of Israel 3,500 years ago did not have the tools to understand the Lord. But the Lord was about to provide the tools to understand and interact and dwell with him. Chapter 25 and 26. The people volunteer, volunteer to give their common instruments, cloth, metal, oils, as materials set apart to construct a dwelling place for the Lord. A chest with a mercy seat, an ark, wink, wink, will be constructed upon which the Lord can sit and stand, and which will represent the presence of the Lord, along with the table, a lampstand, a tent, all set apart for the Lord. Chapter 27 and 30. An altar, an outdoor space, a basin, and oil, and incense will all be created and set apart for the Lord. Chapters 28 and 29. The tribe of the Levites will be set apart to serve the Lord as priests with special clothing and special sacrificial rituals. Chapter 31. Two builders will be set apart to craft all these stone items. A day of rest will be set apart for the Lord. And here, Moses, this is what God says. Here, Moses, here are the tools through which I can live and interact with my people Israel. It'll take time to create it, but it'll be worth it. All of you will be set apart for me. But below them, this is what's happening below the cloud. And this is what the people of Israel had in mind. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Three points. This could be an act of rebellion against the Lord. But more likely, it's an act of panic. It's motivated by fear. Remember, a mysterious God who communicates almost exclusively through a prophet led them from a place they'd been 400 years, uprooted them, and brought them into the middle of the wilderness. And now, as far as they know, the prophet's gone. The people are responding to a perceived leadership vacuum. Second point. The signal that God was present was actually the cloud. It was visible for 40 days and for 40 nights that Moses was gone. But that wasn't good enough for Israel. They wanted a more tangible form of God to interact with under their conditions. Point three. Consider the fact that the people of Israel are ready to make gods because of Moses' absence, not because of the Lord's absence. Their connection was with Moses. Moses led them out of Egypt. Moses shared the statutes. They don't have a direct relationship with God. They have a relationship with the prophet. And so when the prophet is gone, he needs to be replaced. But the importance is placed on the prophet, not on the Lord. Ever heard of this happening with well-known pastors or religious leaders where the congregation holds them up as more holy or closer to God than everybody else and then obeys them as though they were, he was God himself? It sounds a little bit like idolatry. Have you guys ever heard of this happening? Yeah, me neither. Anyways, <laughs> verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. First, note that these items were not volunteered. They're not given out of the goodness of their hearts. They were ordered to be handed over. Second, Moses, sorry, Moses, Aaron, Aaron who has been by Moses' side throughout the Exodus, who has seen the miracles that God has performed through him. Aaron does not say, wait a second. Think about what you're asking for here. No, in complete obedience to the people, Aaron says, give me your rings. Verse 4, then he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it into a graving tool and made a golden calf. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What do the people say will now represent the presence of the Lord? What will their God inhabit? Since they don't have a person in that place anymore, they'll create one, a golden calf. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And he proclaimed, made a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. Aaron builds the calf, an altar to the calf. Aaron sets apart a day of worship to the calf. No one's telling him to do any of this. He's doing this out of his own need. He wants to fill the vacuum of ways to worship this God. Verse 7. Then they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and to play. The people, not the Levites as the Lord has done, play the role of the priests, offering the sacrifices to the calf. And they're likely following the, the dictates of worship that they've seen in Egypt or among the people around them, engaging in revelry and dancing, or it can even be a little more R-rated. In any case, it's very different from the mode of worship that God has set apart for them. For you see, the Lord has been giving them a path, a direction, and a series of behaviors to follow that will take time to perform. And the people have been doing the mirror image 
dictating a path, a direction, and a series of behaviors to themselves, and they're doing it as fast as they possibly can to fill the apparent absence left by Moses. The people dictate the composition of their God. The people dictate the shape of their God, a God who does not speak, and construct this golden dwelling place in no time at all. The, the people dictate the altar shape. The people choose the, the day of worship. The people choose the method of worship. The Lord is attempting to set these people apart for him. The people are attempting to make themselves like everybody else. The golden calf is not a god. It's a figurehead. It merely represents the people's true gods themselves. This strikes right at the heart of idolatry for God and for us. All of us were created with a need, a dependency for the Lord. And when we feel him moving in and around us, being his people is all we want to do. It's a great feeling. But when we feel his absence, when we, we think he's gone, when we go through pain that causes us to stumble, when we go through a tragedy that knocks us off our feet, when we go through suffering that causes us to question what being his people is really all about, then we react in fear and in panic. What do we do when we're afraid no one's in control? We create things. Money, power, respect, success, relationships, community. We create things that we can elevate and say, this, this is what keeps the order. This is what provides our guidance. This is what keeps us safe. It provides us with certainty. But the truth is, we created those things. We elevated those things. We do it because we can't see a God, and it scares us. Idolatry really isn't about self-centeredness or egotism. It's about fear and the desire for control. Everything we uphold as an idol, money, fame, success, love, is because we feel we have control over these things. The rich pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. The famous earned their way through the upper echelons. The influential control their own destiny. It's not true. But these are the narratives we create to calm ourselves, to provide order where there seemingly is none. No order? Just read a paper, look at the news feed, watch cable news. You can't help but feel sometimes that life is just a crapshoot. Idolatry is really about us feeling in control. It's about our mitigating of our, our fear of chaos. Idolatry is really all about us. Certainty has become an idol in our lives. And don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with certainty in itself. Progress comes from certainty, as do developments in science and technology, even religion. But we don't seek a relationship with the Lord for the purpose of being certain. Once upon a time, we all knew that our faith served to reconcile the mysteries of life, not to remove them. The Lord is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. We were incapable of fully comprehending him, and that's okay. But with the development of science and technology and the concept that we now could know so many aspects of life with certainty, we realized that what we knew to be true of God could now be called into question. So rather than reconciliation with life's mysteries, we turned faith into a path for certainty. And so we unwittingly began to construct a God we could not comprehend, we could comprehend, and that we could know for certain rather than trust in the Lord that we could not. Thank you.
Once faith, once faith be, was a means to seek Jesus, but now faith can serve as an idol seeking out another idol, certainty. It's not enough to know Jesus. Now we must protect, possess the correct view of Jesus as Lord and Savior in order to be saved. And if you don't correct the correct view, if you don't possess that correct view of Jesus, well then, consider yourself outside of the family of God. See ya. But because of our new desire for certainty, this correct view of Jesus wasn't enough. You had to have the correct view of the Bible. You had to have an understanding of how the world was created. You had to know how women could not lead. You had to know the place of homosexuality within Christianity. This was no longer about the Lord. This was about our perception of him. He wasn't the way, the truth, and the life. Our views of him were, which were influenced by our desires and our experiences and our preferences. If you still lay within this circle, welcome, brother and sister. If you didn't, you better change how you think right now. The problem is, whose circle is this? In Christianity, we have created our families of God based around our correct view. And if your view on a particular issue is godly and biblical, and everyone else's is wrong, then you're in the good graces of the Lord, and they're damned. But, if on another specific issue you might have, you, someone else has the godly and the biblical view, and while everyone else does not, you could have two Christians with the same opinion on one issue, and they're voting out everybody else of the kingdom of God. They're just voting people off the island. But if these two Christians disagreed on another issue, all of a sudden they'd be voting each other out. This doesn't represent Christians everywhere, but the ones that tend to act this way, you're out, no, you're out, uh, what do you think? No, you're out, uh, yeah, no, you're out. The folks that act like this, they tend to get a lot of attention on social media and in the news. For example, God wants you to buy me a plane. Out! God hates gay people. Out! God wants women to never leave men. Out! God loves the GLBT community. Out! The Bible can be interpreted figuratively in some narratives. Out! God wants us to work towards evangelism and social justice. Out! Having divergent views isn't a sin, but the way we treat others with divergent views can be. In order to find reconciliation within this family of God, we have to do two things. First of all, grace. And by grace, I don't mean elegance, as in Jackie O was so filled with elegance and style and grace. Oh, look how she moved, and look how she dressed. That's not what I'm talking about. By grace, I mean an undeserved favor, as in Hail Mary, full of grace, a young girl who was given the privilege of taking a special part in the world's salvation. It's a generosity. It's a kindness. It's a love that is shared not because of what someone does, but because of who someone is. Our passage today ended with the Lord telling Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may not burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, and that I may make a great nation out of you. In other words, God was saying, Moses, step aside and let me wipe out those people, and then I'm going to make you the father of this new nation. If we read further, we would see that Moses did not step aside, but instead he advocated and pleaded for the people 
He appealed to the Lord's reason, to his reputation, and to the upholding of a promise that the Lord had made centuries before to a man named Abraham. And then Moses went down to the people and tried to, and tried to understand why they had made such a fatal mistake. And he, then he did not, dismiss, did not dismiss the mistake. He held them accountable for what they had done. Advocacy, understanding, accountability, presence. This is how we are to respond to our brothers and sisters with whom we disagree on specific issues. Be there. Don't cut them off from yourself and the community without deliberation, deliberation and prayer. Speak on their behalf, not their beliefs. Try to understand their beliefs and try to understand why they choose to believe them. And here's the hard part. Use the tools that the Lord has given to you, not the tools that you want to use for yourself. Understand this about someone with opposing views. If they have their views and they're set on it, if they're obstinate, if they're stiff-necked, their God cannot be wrong. And when they imbue their God with their own views and their own desires and their own prejudices, none of those can fail under scrutiny, or else their God is false, and their understanding of the world falls apart. So they protect their God by any means necessary, sometimes including the animosity and the evil that their God claims to hate. They'll attack your views, they'll attack you, and they'll avoid taking a critical look at this God they've created. And as in Aaron's case, they might find a scapegoat. The calf created itself. He actually does say this. A golden calf, the people around you, money, power, success, whatever, we can say those things and say, that's what's to blame, that tempted me, I fell for it. But we have to hold them accountable for how their beliefs may be leading them and others astray from the Lord's will. But we do this with deliberation and prayer. The second thing we need to possess, humility. Display humility. This might be crazy to consider, but we might all be wrong. The Lord that we follow may just be a God that we've conceived and constructed and proclaimed out of fear of a world of disorder and uncertainty. This is what atheists promote. And if we're honest, we have to say that they might just be right. We're just as scared and as worried and as nervous as everyone else. But remember, if the Lord is the one true God, he can withstand with scrutiny. He can stand up to debate and criticism. In fact, he can be glorified through these things. With our Christian brothers and sisters, we have to consider that their views on the Lord's will might be more true than ours. Though we might try to mitigate it by connecting with the Lord through prayer and study, by being in community now with our predecessors, by looking at reason and science and every means that God places before us, though we might try our best not to be, we are just as susceptible to error as everyone else. After consideration prayer and reading of Genesis, I believe that God created the universe and that he used the construct of evolution to do so. But I also acknowledge that according to another interpretation of Genesis embraced by many of my brothers and sisters with whom God is also in relationship, the Lord might have created the universe in seven 24-hour periods. And so I might be wrong. If I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and might, then I have to be able to say, if this is the Lord's truth, then I must conform to him and not him to me. And before you think I'm way over the edge, let's get this straight. When it comes to orthodoxy, the right thought about the Lord, I'm all the way in. 
I'm a firm believer in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered upon the Pilate, crucified, died, was buried, descended to hell, and 38 years again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and seated the right hand of the Father before the God Almighty. From this, he shall come to the judge of the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection in the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I stuttered too. I believe in all these things. This is the Apostles' Creed, which first appeared less than 200 years after the resurrection of Jesus. It was developed using the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament to create a baseline for what followers of Jesus ought to believe. And since then, almost nearly every Christian community has held it as a standard of orthodoxy. And in working with a myriad of my brothers and uh, sisters in Christianity, I have come to see several disagree with this creed on, say, everything in red. That's pretty much everything between I and the amen that I have, someone has disagreed with the creed on. Now, I could have done what so many others seem to be willing to do on social media. I could have called one of them out and said to everyone, Attention, attention, this man who claims to follow Jesus does not believe that this clause is true. He has denied the veracity of the Bible, and he has put asunder the creed to which our followers of Jesus have ascribed to those since the beginning of our faith. Therefore, he is not a true Christian, and we must cast him out from our presence. Leave, heathen, and take thy heresy with thee. We'll talk later. (laughs) But the truth is, these people who have disagreed with this verse, I know personally. I've known them in some cases for years. And I've seen how God has worked in them and through them and how they've served the Lord in the community with God's help. And yes, there have been a time or two when I've needed to ask someone to stop teaching because of their unorthodox beliefs. For example, uh, there's no such thing as a trinity. But I would never ask anyone that claimed that someone... I would never claim that someone has left Jesus behind. But like in any relationship, he's just trying to figure it out. A relationship with Jesus is not about certainty. A relationship with Jesus is about Jesus. And that's it. As omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent as he is, little old me is unable to understand him in his will fully. And so we must embrace the uncertainty and the mystery as part of his greatness. We must focus, not focus all of our attention on what one believes, but upon what, whom they are moving towards. So, remove our idol from the spot. Let Jesus take the place. Remove our opinions of how Jesus should operate, who he should be, what he should do, who he should love. Remove the line, and in its place, place scripture and tradition and the Spirit. And instead of thinking about, I exist here, I exist here, I exist here, instead of thinking about our positions relative to Jesus, we should think about our orientation towards Jesus. There are people, Jesus has said, there are people that will say, Lord, Lord, and he will never have heard of them. And the reason is because it's not because of where they sit within the circle. It's because their arrow was pointing the opposite way. We started with the golden calf, and we have ended with uncertainty. This isn't quite the way I wanted this sermon to end, but the Lord will always be the Lord. And if we invite him to be himself in our lives, our understanding and our concept of him will ever move in the direction of truth. And sometimes we have to start with the statement, God is not, in order to arrive at what we know God is. Now, 
you might not agree with what I'm about to show you. Uh, you, you might disagree with it or th not like how it's portrayed, uh, but that's the point. In order to come to the truth of who the Lord is, we have to be willing to consider the possibilities of who he is not. God is not a man. God is not a white man. God is not a man sitting on a cloud. God cannot be bought. God will not be boxing. God will not be owned by religion. But God is love. God is love. white man but you know god's not a white man so let me end with this prayer that was composed by a man who lost his direction in life but he ended up finding god and his purpose so pray with me please our lord god sometimes we have no idea of where we are going we do not see the road ahead of us we cannot know for certain where it will end nor do we really know ourselves and the fact that we think we are following your will 
does not mean that we're actually doing so. But we believe that you know us and that our desire to please you does in fact please you. And we hope that we have this desire in everything we do. We hope that we will never do anything apart from that desire. And we know that if we do this, you will lead us by the right road, though we might know nothing about it. We will trust you always, though we always may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. You will never leave us to faith our perils alone. And we will not fear, for you are ever with us. Amen.